Merry Christmas. I hope you had an amazing celebration of the Lord's first coming as we look forward to the second. And my family and I were blessed to spend Christmas with our extended family in, and our immediate family down in Texas. And it was uh, just a tremendous time and I'm thankful to be back in the snow. <laughs> but <laughs> Happy New Year as well. It's New Year's Eve. So many of you know that before my days of pastoral ministry, I worked for a, a global distributor and we distributed uh, electrical and data commu communication products uh, all over the world. And we had uh, over a million different products that we could and did sell. And we had uh, 150,000 customers. And it's the job of a distributor to have the inventory in stock for the customer when they need it. And if you've been a part of any business that deals with inventory, you know how important it is to have an accurate assessment of your inventory. It doesn't matter if you're running a small bakery or a global distribution company. If you don't have, if your inventory isn't accurate, if you don't have what you think you have, it's going to disrupt the business and it's going to be a huge inconvenience to the customers. I mean, imagine if Amazon said, oh, it's in stock, you can have it tomorrow, and you click on it, only to later find out, oops, it was a mistake, it wasn't in stock, and it's going to be six weeks. I mean, that's, that just disrupts things. And so most businesses, for this reason, do what we call a physical inventory. They count their product to make sure that their inventory is accurate. And my company would do this at the end of every year. And it was a huge undertaking, counting every single one of those parts. And it involved a lot of late nights and coffee and pizza. And nobody looked forward to doing it. But it was just really important so that we could update the system and have an accurate assessment of our inventory. And um, one of my jobs in IT there was to, to in, implement things like RF scanners and cycle counts and processes. So we were counting throughout the year. We didn't have this big disruptive event at the end of the year. But nevertheless, it's important to have an accurate appraisal of your inventory as a business. And if that's the case, how important is it for us to have an accurate appraisal of our faithfulness as Christians, something that I'm going to call a spiritual inventory. And is there anything in the Bible that highlights the importance of this or gives us direction on how to go about this? That's what I'm going to look at this morning uh, because it, we're on the eve of a new year. And as Dan mentioned in the welcome, it's a great time to both look back and to look forward and to move forward. And so the, we're going to take a little break from our Thessalonians series. And the message title this morning is something different. It's called Spiritual Inventory. And it's a New Year's message. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. And there's two ideas that I want to draw out of this. First, a self-evaluation. And then secondly, divine communication. And so we'll work through... Um, most of these chapters, I'm going to let the word speak for itself in a lot of areas, but we'll just um, try, I'll do my best to break that down. 
but before we jump into Revelation, most of you know that last month we began this series in Thessalonians called Dear Church. And it's letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to this new church in Thessalonica. Well, someone in our church sent me this meme a couple weeks ago. They said, if Paul saw the church in America today, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> yeah, we would, I think. I don't think it'd be a letter to the Corinthians. I think it'd be a letter maybe to the Californians <laughs> or the Midwesterners. Or We'd be getting a letter. But the fact is, we've already gotten letters from the Lord. Not just the epistles, but what we're going to see in Revelation is seven letters to the churches. And while they're not addressed specifically to Riverside Community Church, they're still meant for us. And so just to make sure that we don't miss that point, at the end of every letter, Jesus says, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't even take two ears. He just says one ear. If you got one ear, you need to hear this. And that includes all of us. So these letters are written to us. And so I want to first look at this idea of a self-evaluation. Because this is a principle that we see throughout the Bible. That we as believers are to examine ourselves and our faithfulness to do a spiritual inventory, as I'm calling it. And we see it in the Old Testament. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 says, Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. And then we see the same thing in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Those are the words of God. And this morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And the instruction there is real clear too. It says a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. To make sure we don't do that in an unworthy manner. So we're to examine ourselves. But is it possible to have a wrong evaluation of our faithfulness, of our spirituality? Can we have that wrong? It is very possible. And that's one of the dangers. And that's why we want to cover this. Because one verse from our text, it's, it's in chapter 3, verse 17 of Revelation. This is Jesus. He says to this church, he says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. These are the believers in the church he's speaking to. And they are fully convinced that they are doing great. They don't need a thing. I'm good. But Jesus says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. You're, you're, you're wretched, naked, pitiful, poor, blind. That's like a startling rebuke. They didn't have it right. Where did they go wrong? How did they come up with such a, a wrong appraisal of themselves? Well, either they didn't examine themselves spiritually or they didn't go about it the right way. And as a result, they were being misled. So how should we go about it? Well, let me read you what David says. He first recognized that God knows you and I, and, and David himself, better than we even know ourselves. 
He wrote in Psalm 139, he said, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Get this, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. God knows our thoughts even before we think them. He knows what we're going to say before we say them. He knows the motives behind those things. So rather than forming our own opinions about how we're doing, we need to look to the Lord. And that's why David continues in Psalm 139. And he says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David's saying, God, you know me. What do you have to say about my faith and my works? How's my integrity? Is there anything you have against me, Lord? Show me so that I may repent and by your power change. And so that's the right approach to a self-evaluation. And this is what will keep us walking faithfully with the Lord. So as we get into the the text this morning, we're going to see God's evaluation of seven churches. And we're going to see what they were doing well and what they were doing poorly. And we're going to see what important lessons there are in that for us. Because it's also written to each one of us here at Riverside. I've always found it easier to learn from the mistakes of others. And there's a lot of mistakes in here. I'm just not going to live long enough to make all the mistakes myself. I make enough of them, but I want to learn from others. And I want to learn from their example also. What were they doing well? What were they doing wrong? So we're going to jump into it then. Let's look at this divine communication, a letter from God to each one of us personally this morning. So Revelation chapter 1 is where we'll start. And the Apostle John, he's on the the island of Patmos, he was banished there for his faith. So this is an act of persecution. And as he's there, he receives this revelation. And I want to just highlight, first of all, who it is that's giving the revelation. In verse 8 of chapter 1, it reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, some question whether this is God the Father or God the Son, who's speaking in verse 8. Because these titles are very similar to that of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Well, we're told quite clearly, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony from the churches. You'll find that in chapter 22. And he ascribes these titles to himself. He says in in verse 13 of chapter 22, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, this is me. These titles that in the Old Testament were ascribed to Yahweh, Jesus is claiming these same titles for himself. And the fact that they're almost identical as those of Yahweh in the Old Testament, speaks to the oneness of God and this mysterious thing that we call the Trinity. Three persons and one God. And look at verse 17 in chapter 1. 
John writes, when I saw him, meaning Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am, here's one of these titles, the first and the last. I am the living one. And get this, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus speaking. The first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so he begins chapter 2 then, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now there's a lot of symbolism in that. We're not going to break all that down this morning. Someday, Lord willing, we'll go through the whole book of Revelation verse by verse and we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to understand and apply that. But we're going to just pull out what he's saying to these churches this morning. But he says in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. And you have tested those who claim to be an apostle but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And then in verse 4, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this church in Ephesus is the same church where Paul ministered for three years. It's the same church where Timothy ministered for some time. It's the same church that Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to. This church had lots of good teaching and preaching. And yet, and, and before we go to yet, they were doing a lot of things right. They, first of all, Jesus says, it, it, their hard work and perseverance in verse 2. He says they have persevered and endured hardship for Jesus' name and have not grown weary. So they were a, a hard-working church, and he commends them for this. And they were also a discerning church because the second half of verse 2 says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. We hear a lot about tolerance today, don't we? But here's something we're going to see as we go through these letters. Tolerance is not a virtue when it's talking about tolerance of sin or false teaching. It's not a virtue. And so we're, we'll bring that up. We'll see that again in chapter 3. But Jesus is real clear. You have tested them. You have not, you will not tolerate this false teaching. He says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. Now this, this city of Ephesus was full of all kinds of negative influences. They had the temple of Diana, the fertility goddess. And they worshipped her through the practice of sexual immorality. 
And they had the temple of Artemis where they practiced idolatry. It was full of these pagan temples. Yet the Ephesians didn't let this immorality and false doctrine creep into their church. They were discerning. And they were commended for that. They were steadfast in their faith and they were hardworking. But then we read these words of Jesus in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Maybe a good way to think about this first love would be like on a human level. If you're married, think back to when you first met your spouse. When you were first dating. How much time you spent together. How you enjoyed being together, staring into each other's eyes, talking about things. You spent hours together. It was a joy. And then you got married and all this excitement and newness. But maybe over the years it kind of wore off a little bit. Now there's nothing wrong with going toward a deeper love, but if we don't cultivate that relationship ongoing, then rather than our love growing deeper, it grows further apart. And now marriage is just more practical, functional. We're just kind of cohabitating and we get a, a nice, you know, uh, married filing jointly status on our tax return. But that's not what it was like at first. First love. Jesus, by first love, he would be talking about spending time at his feet, listening, praying, worshiping, just fellowshipping with the Lord, enjoying his presence, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week, and enjoying this fellowship with his kids, the other believers in the church body. Remember when Jesus went to the home of Martha and Martha was so busy preparing and cooking and Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and worshiping. Martha got all upset because Mary wasn't working like her, but Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better. Now the point isn't that work isn't important. Work is important, but it should never displace worship. And so here at Riverside, I think we have a hard-working church. We have a lot of people who work hard at serving the Lord, and that's such a good thing. And, and I think we also do a good job of holding to the truth of God's word, not bowing to what the culture says. And we do a good job of, of holding to that truth, but still speaking that truth in love toward those who do not believe. We don't do that harshly, I don't think. And I believe we place a high value on worship as well. Collectively, I think Riverside, we do a good job in this area. But what about personally? I think we should each ask, am I working hard to serve the Lord with the gifts that he's given me? Am I keeping the influences of the world from creeping into my life? Am I still taking time just to worship? We talked about the Bible reading plan. Do I have time? Is there room from last Sunday? Is there room in my life for Jesus to just spend time at his feet? Am I staying close to my first love? What would you say to me, Lord? What would you have me change in this area? Would you commend what I'm doing or would you correct me? So we don't 
want to leave our first love. That's got to be our highest priority is worship of Jesus. That is the better thing. So this is his instruction to the church in Ephesus. He now turns to the church in Smyrna, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So here's Jesus again describing himself as the first and the last. Titles ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. But here it's Jesus. And look what else he says. He says he's the one who died and came to life again. Jesus, our Lord, speaking. And this Smyrna, this was a prosperous city. Yet these believers were living in poverty. And the word used for poverty is like abject poverty. The poorest of the poor. And they were poor because they were robbed and persecuted for their faith. They were poor because they held faithfully to the testimony of Jesus. And so listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Isn't it good to know that whatever we might be going through, God knows. And more than knows, he sees it and he cares about it. We might feel sometimes like God has forgotten us. He has no idea what I've been through this past year. But God knows. He sees it. In our flesh, though, we might forget that. But Jesus reminds his church. He wants to encourage them. And Smyrna was the most faithful of the seven churches. Jesus has nothing negative to say about them at all. He knew they were the poorest of the poor physically. But he says... Yet you, Smyrna, are rich. You're rich spiritually. And so what beautiful words to hear from Jesus. But as hard as it was for this church, the persecution they were under, Jesus tells them it's going to get worse. They're about to be persecuted to the point of being thrown in prison, to the point of death even. This was the most faithful church. They're poor. They're persecuted. What does this say about those who preach a prosperity gospel? Well, if you're just faithful enough, you'll be wealthy. You won't have any troubles. See, your struggles are because you're not faithful. Well, that's from the pit of hell. Jesus tells them this is the most faithful church, and they were poor, but he says they were rich spiritually. What about us? It's not wrong to be wealthy. We know that. Abraham, many in the Bible were wealthy. But it is a great challenge to be both wealthy and faithful. Oftentimes material riches can come at the expense of spiritual riches. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And so it's a great area to examine ourselves in. Are there any ways in which we're forsaking Christ for material gain? Is the pursuit of a career coming before the pursuit of Christ? 
Am I a good steward of what God has entrusted to me? And again, would God commend me for the way I handle these things or would he correct me? That's the church in Smyrna. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. <laughs> That's kind of threatening. <laughs> I know where you live. <laughs> oh, he does. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You, didn't, you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give you, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Pergamum. This was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. This was like Washington, D.C. in Asia. How interesting that Jesus says it's the city where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. It just seems like Satan enjoys hanging out with politicians. <laughs> and so it makes me tempted to tell a political story. But, all right, you made me do it. <laughs> okay, so one night, the president of the United States, I'm not going to name him, you can pick your president. The president of the United States was awakened in the White House by the ghost of George Washington. And the president asked him, George, what is the best thing I can do to help the country? And George says, set an honest and honorable example, just as I did. Well, the next night, the ghost of Thomas Jefferson is moving through the dark bedroom. The president says, Tom, what is the best thing I could do to help the country? And Tom says, cut taxes and reduce the size of government. Well, the third night, the president couldn't sleep at all. And he saw another figure moving through the shadows. And this time it was the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And the president asked, Abe, what is the best thing I could do to help the country? Go to the theater. I didn't name any presidents. <laughs> Pergamum was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia. And it was filled with temples to the Greek and Roman gods. And they even had a temple to worship the emperor Caesar. They required people to worship the political leader of the country. These are some of the, the ruins of Pergamum, or yours might say Pergamon or Pergamus. They're all just different variations of the name. It's in modern-day Turkey. And the largest structure from Pergamum is this monumental altar for the worship of the Greek god Zeus and his daughter Athena. And they dug this thing up, and they moved it to Berlin, where it's in the Pergamon Museum. 
Some believe this to be the, quote, throne of Satan that is referenced in our text. And so there was this enormous altar to worship these pagan gods. Now, in this letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And back in chapter 1, he said that that sword is coming from his mouth. Now, that's a weird metaphor, this double-edged sword coming from his mouth. But the sword is referring to the word of God. And Hebrews 4.12 helps us understand this. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God does that. It penetrates. So the sword is the word of God. And it speaks of his authority and his judgment. God sees all. He knows all. And his word will cut right through any lies or deception or pretense. It'll get right to the heart of the matter. And it'll expose people, including us, for what we really are. That's the power of the word of God. Now, this church in Pergamum, like the other churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, they'd endured hardships and persecution, and yet they had remained faithful. Even to the point of death, it says, as with Antipas. But nevertheless, this church allowed themselves to be influenced by the false teaching around them. The teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, it mentions. And the specific influence is said to be in the areas of idolatry, and sexual immorality. Notice it speaks of the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. And it mentions this teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so I get the idea from this that this church was influenced by this smooth-talking, truth-twisting speech of either politicians and or false prophets. And they let it creep into their thinking and into their way of life. They adopted it. And Jesus says, as the one who has this sharp double-edged sword, that he will cut through all of this nonsense. In our country today, there's a growing divide between what's legal and popular and what's right in God's eyes. Just think about some of these things. Drunkenness, materialism, homosexuality, Recreational drugs now, abortion, sleeping around, living together, pornography, and on and on and on. These things aren't illegal necessarily. Our politicians have okayed them, but they're sinful. And if we accept these things just because our politicians have approved them or because our culture has made them popular well then, we're doing the same thing. We're being influenced by false teachers. And God will cut right through that with the power and authority of his word. So we have to ask ourselves, in these areas, are we standing for what is right individually? Are we standing for what is right? Or are we letting these influences creep in and change the way we think and the way we act as believers? Is it compromising our witness? That's the church in Pergamum. Let's look at verse 18. 
to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to alt idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Wow. The blazing eyes of Jesus, in this case, speak of God's knowledge of everything we do. He sees it. And not just his knowledge, but also, again, his judgment. And he sees what's going on in these people's lives. This is the church. He says, I know your deeds, your faith, your love, your service and perseverance. And you're now doing more than you did at first. These guys, too, were doing a lot of things right. And they're doing it more and more. They were growing. They were growing in their faith and in their practice of these things now wouldn't it be awesome if it just ended there Jesus says period but he doesn't he doesn't there's these chilling words nevertheless Ugh. in other words all that good stuff you're doing doesn't minimize this offense that follows you tolerate that woman Jezebel now Jezebel may have been her actual name or it just may have been it may have been like a moniker for an evil or moral person, similar to the way we might say he's a Hitler or he's a Judas, she's a Jezebel. Either way, the church in Thyatira tolerated her by her words and by her lifestyle. She was enticing people and drawing them into sexual immorality and idolatry. Apparently, they didn't confront her. They didn't say, what you're doing is wrong. Or if they did, when she refused to repent, they didn't put her out of the church. They just lived with it. And so she went on spewing this, these false enticing words. As I said before, tolerance is not a virtue if it's tolerance of sin or false teaching. They should have put her out. Now, before we all start thinking and speaking judgment on all those people out there in the world, on the, on the West Coast, wherever, downtown. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read you verses 9 through 13. 
It says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idlers. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such men do not even eat. What business is it? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. We're to judge sin inside the church, not outside. How much of our focus goes on what all those unbelievers are doing out there and protesting them? And, but we're to look within and not just our brothers and sisters, but within our own hearts. This doesn't mean that we don't make moral judgments about what the world is doing, what's right and wrong we do, but we don't condemn them. That's God's job. Our job is to point them to the forgiveness and the life that is in Christ and to look within our own heart. So let judgment begin with us. Scripture says, and as members of this church body, we need to ask ourselves, what example am I, leave, am I leaving in my words and in my lifestyle? What immoral things have I allowed to creep into my life? Where might the Lord say, nevertheless, Paul, I have this against you? Where do we need to repent and change? That's his instruction here, to repent and change. Now here's the thing. I was, I was just meditating on this the other day. And I think this holds power to help us change. Here it is. If there's something in our lives that is not pleasing to the Lord. Then know that he has something better for us. If there's something that's not pleasing that he's asking us to give up. Know that he has something better for us. Because God wants only the best for his children. Do you believe that? Then why do we hold so tenaciously to certain sins? As if, if I give this up, I'm not going to have that. Play. No, God has something better. Give that up. Repent of that and change. And God will replace it with something even better. You think about any sin that you struggle with. By giving that up, God has something even better for you and for me. So God, God is merciful. He gives us time to repent. He even gave Jezebel time to repent. But he's also a just judge. And a lack of repentance on our part will lead to God's judgment in our lives. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay, we're moving into chapter 3. A couple more. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. 
Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this church in Sardis, I think, is a lot like America. It it was known for easy money and lax morals. It was a prosperous city, but it was an immoral city. It was the height of decadence at the time. And once again, this had spilled over into the church. They were living it up in a very worldly way as believers. Jesus says you have a reputation of being alive, but you were dead. They had a false assessment of themselves and their faithfulness and their spirituality and even where they stood before the Lord. And so this letter is a stern wake-up call. call. Quite literally, God says in verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So we see again judgment for the church. He's talking about judgment for the church. Not in the sense of losing their salvation. But experiencing suffering in this life. And a loss of rewards in the life that is to come. And. And this is because their works and their faith are absent or incomplete. You know, each of us is created in Christ to do what? Good works. We're recreated in Christ to do good works. They don't achieve for us our salvation, but once we're saved, we're created to do good works. So how are we doing with these gifts that the Lord has given us? If our works are lacking then the instruction for us is the same as it is for this church, to repent and obey the Lord. We don't want to settle for something less than God's best for us. So, verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make the, those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come up come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
This is, a, this is Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor. The city of brotherly love is what this meant. And this, the city of Philadelphia, it, it, was, it was right on a highway connecting two continents, Europe and Asia Minor. So this was like a gateway city, almost like, you know, they consider St. Louis the gateway to the West. Philadelphia was the gateway to Asia Minor from Europe. And so it was built there specifically to spread the Greek language and the Greek culture to the continent of Asia. That was their point. So it was like a gateway, an open door. But God has other plans. He intends to use it for the spread of the gospel. And he says in verse 8, See, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. Well, it's speaking of an open door of evangelism. And God places before each one of us an open door of evangelism. Whether it's in our community, our schools, our places of work, our neighborhoods, or in our families, he places us there and gives us an open door of evangelism. You might say, oh, but that's an area where I'm not strong. I'll, I'll serve in the church, I'll do whatever, I'll clean the toilets, but no, not evangelism. I'm not strong in that area. Well, neither were the believers in Philadelphia. Jesus said in verse 8, I know that you have little strength. That's not a criticism. We're all inherently weak, especially when it comes to sharing this amazing gospel. We have a treasure in a jar of clay an old dirt pot. But Jesus is the one who said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He's looking for those that recognize they're weak, that they have no strength, but will surrender and say, God, use me. Give me your power. Work through me. We are weak and powerless in and of ourselves, especially when it comes to changing lives with the gospel. We can't do that. But we can allow God's strength to work through us. But we draw upon Jesus, we're strong. And I've been so delighted this year to hear more and more people at Riverside who are boldly sharing their faith with neighbors, with coworkers, with friends, with fellow workers in their, in their business. And God in his power and strength is working through those people, those believers in amazing ways. And he's doing a saving work and he's changing lives. And it's so exciting. We don't have to be strong. We have to recognize we're weak and we have to draw on God's power. And God will do this work through us. So how are we doing? We have an open door. We should consider here on the eve of a new year, how am I doing in taking the gospel to those people around me? Am I allowing God's power to work through my weakness? Or am I succumbing to my weakness? Okay, last church. Verse 14. The angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I love these titles. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Whoa. This is the harshest of Jesus' rebukes to any of the churches. This church had a false assessment of themselves. They thought they were doing so well and they were sorely mistaken. Jesus says, you're not doing well. Quite the opposite. And this is why it's so important for us individually to take a spiritual inventory like David did to invite the Lord to search us and speak into our lives and show us, God, what am I doing that's not pleasing to you? What do you want me to change in this coming year? Now God's stern warning, and it is that, and his threat of pending judgment, this is not mean. This is not a mean, angry God. This is a loving God. Look at what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the love of God that he shows us our true selves. He wants to. When we inquire of him, he will. And he shows us he will discipline us. If we, if we continue in rebellion in areas of our lives, he will discipline us just as a father disciplines his son. Father doesn't do that because he hates his son. He does that because he loves his son. So he gives us time to repent. He's merciful. But he wants us to repent, to turn. And over and over again in these letters, did you hear what Jesus said? He said, to him who overcomes these things. To overcome means to win or to defeat an adversary, to overcome. There's a lot in these two chapters to overcome, isn't there? We're surrounded by negative influences and temptations. They're everywhere. How will we ever overcome these things? Simple. Stick close to Jesus. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says they, meaning the believers, overcame him, meaning the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So as we evaluate ourselves and we see our failures, and I hope you will take some time to just say, Lord, search me, show me, be honest with me, Lord. What am I doing that's not pleasing to you? As we take time to do that, we want to repent. He says, repent. In other words, turn around, start thinking differently about these things, these, these, these sins that we embrace. Start thinking differently. Admit our failures and ask God to forgive us. Wash us clean by the blood of your son. 
but also give me the power to overcome this. That strength comes from him. Give me the strength to move forward, God, in a way that is pleasing to you. With you at my side, with your strength, clinging to my first love, our Lord Jesus. So this is what he's saying to the church. It's convicting to me. There's things in here I want to work on. And I hope, again, that you'll just take some time to do a self-evaluation, but not alone. Do it with the Lord, seeking his, his wisdom, his word speaking into your life. Let me just do a quick recap of some of the things we covered, because there's a lot here. We do need to examine ourselves before God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So we need to ask him. We need to ask him to show us where we're lacking. And we should consider, am I working hard to serve the Lord? Am I persevering in that hard work or am I growing weary of doing good, as the Galatians says? Do I have the right measure of work and worship in my life? Both are really important. If we're only doing one, we're, we're falling way short. Do I have the right measure of both? Is Jesus still my first love? What immoral things have I allowed to creep into my life? Remember, tolerance is not a virtue if it's tolerance of sin or false teaching. Am I forsaking Christ for material gain? In other words, am I pursuing riches, material riches, at the expense of worldly riches? God says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He wants us to have treasures, but the ones here on earth won't last wants us to invest that in a heavenly treasure that will never spoil, fade, perish. What voices am I listening to? Am I standing for what is right as defined by God? Am I bowing to the voices of our culture? See, God will cut through any lies or deception with the power and authority of his word. It'll cut right to the quick. God has given each one of us an open door for evangelism. Am I taking the gospel to the people around me? Am I drawn upon his strength to do it? And by taking the gospel, not just with what we say, but with how we act, that's an even greater testimony. So how are we doing in these areas? Would God commend us or would he correct us? His stern warning and pending judgment is not mean, it's loving. It's because God loves us and he wants the best for us. Remember, if there's something in our lives that's not pleasing to the Lord, then he has something better for us. He wants us to give that up so he can replace it with something better by far. And we will overcome in these areas by one way only, by the power of Jesus. And so we need to repent and stay close to the Lord, the one who overcame the world. So let's, let's pray to our Heavenly Father by the power of our Lord Jesus. God, here we are on New Year's Eve, Lord. You know everything that happened this past year. You know our, our trials, our failures, our triumphs. God, you know it all. You know our heart. You know what's going to happen in the year ahead. Lord, we just kneel, bow our hearts before you. 
and ask you to show us how we're doing. God, show us any way within us that is not pleasing in your sight. God, we want to change that. And we're powerless to do it on our own. We're weak. But God, we cling to you. Forgive us for the sin in our lives. Forgive us for when we look more like the world than like your son. God, wash us clean. And then fill us with the renewed strength to live for you. God, help us to stay close to you this year ahead. Make whatever changes to our schedule, to our budget, whatever we need to do, God, to sit at your feet and to make you our first love. Lord, we know that if we're deeply in love with you, these, these, these temptations of these enticements of the world will have little power over us. So God, change us. Empower us, Lord. We want to live for you and for your glory. And so we look forward, God, to what you will do as we move forward into this new year. And so, God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.